John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hello, Cinephiles fans. This is the outlaw, John Roca. You know, every once in a while on the show, we get to slide into the genre that I love the most in film, and that is Westerns. And this week, we're here with part one of one of my favorite Westerns over the past 20 years, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. This 2007 film directed and written by Andrew Dominic stars Brad Pitt as Jesse James, Casey Affleck as Robert Ford, Sam Shepard as Frank James, Mary Louise Parker, Sam Rockwell, Jeremy Renner, Garrett Dillahunt, Paul Schneider for all you season one Parks and Rec fans, and a host of other incredible character actors that absolutely populate and enrich this elegaic, lyrical western. It's a film that if it touches you and gets to you, you won't forget it anytime soon. And I think this is one that we'll be talking about for years to come as a modern classic in the Western film genre. That is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And the film is all about the exploration and the journey of this very, very unique and strange relationship between Casey Affleck's Robert Ford and Brad Pitt's Jesse James that leads to his death, murder, or assassination, as it says in the title. And for our patrons, this week's Cinephile Short is part two of our three-part conversation Steve Morris and I had, inspired by a discussion over algorithms. This part two is called Confronting Your Unconscious Bias. We talk about casting, diversity, and even some of Steve's past choices and how it changes the way he looks at things and the way I've looked at things and the way you all have probably looked at things now over the last few years when it comes to diversity in any arena. And remember, if you want to pick up any of the films we talk about, you can do so at www.cine-files.net. That's www.cine-files.net. All right. Get ready in a few days for part one of The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford from The Cinephiles. Can't figure it out. You want to be like me or you want to be me? Hello, 
Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host and VO guy here in San Diego, California. And of course, you know me by my other alter ego, The Outlaw. And one of the things... That helped me to achieve that uh, moniker and uh, live up to that moniker is my love of Western. So I'm very excited to get into the movie that we're going to talk about today. Well, this movie is one that you have been talking about mm. forever. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the sure. assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And I am very curious to hear how you first came to this film. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure I went by myself to see this movie. Or if I did go with anyone, it's probably Shannon. I think this is a 2007 film, if I'm yep. correct on that. So, um, yeah, it's very likely I either went with Shannon or by myself to see it in the afternoon. Um and I had just, I remember the scene, the trailers, and I remember just being incredibly excited. This is like the height of Brad Pitt, so to speak, and the idea of a Western, him being in a Western, the idea of Jesse James. And Casey Affleck was someone I had liked since Good Will Hunting. So I was sure. seeing him build step by step his career as well. And this one felt like a very unusual Western. And I had not heard of Andrew Dominic that much before this movie. And so I really went in completely cold just from the trailer, wanting to really enjoy this film and let it take me where it took me. And uh, it's one of those films. And Brad Pitt has done it a couple times with me, Seven being the other one, where it just kind of stays with you and you ruminate on it for a long, long time. I'd never seen this interpretation of Jesse James on screen. Um, such an introspective, such a reflective uh, film and portrayal. And even now, watching in 2021, um, every time I watch it, I take something new and interesting from it, especially when you look at these two lead characters and the mental health stuff that they're both navigating throughout the movie. So in that way, I, I just remember it being a Western that kind of struck me as something I'm going to be revisiting and analyzing for the rest of my life. Well, it's definitely one of those. It's it, it has so much ambiguity to it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, you know, the one the, the two movies I think it's most like are really are, are both ones we talked about on the show, which are mm. The Searchers yeah. and Unforgiven, you know, yeah. Yeah. which are these films where it's like, oh, it's not like like we did Silverado on the show or we did Magnificent right. Seven on the show. Right. I know exactly what those movies are about and what they're yeah. saying and who those characters are and what it all means. Mm -hmm. Unforgiven, The Searchers, and this film, I don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you like to know how I came to it? Sure, of course. Of course. Uh, this weekend. <laughs> First time ever. First time. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't. I've told you that before, but I wasn't sure if you remembered or not. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I've been hearing about you talk about this for years. And right. then. We've been talking about doing this since the beginning of the cinephiles. Yes, I, very I knew true. it was one. That, and so every time we talked about it, we would say, "Okay, let's do that in the next couple of months." Mm -hmm. And I go, "Okay, I'm going to watch this movie in the next couple of months." And then we <laughs> never did it, so I never watched it until right. just this last weekend. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, there 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 have been a few movies over the years where you or I hadn't seen it or oh, yeah. hadn't seen it in a long time. There hasn't been a movie like that that is as complicated, heavy, difficult, and serious as mm -hmm. this film. All the movies that are really profound, I had seen before. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, like the fact that I hadn't seen Zora the Gay Blade in 30 years, 
Right. It didn't make a big difference to me. It wasn't, <laughs> but this is like, you know, I'm not putting it on the level necessarily with the Godfather, but there's a lot to this movie oh, yeah. and I've only had a few days to kind of reckon with it. Ooh, so, okay. you know, so it's, it's I, I'm going to really be leaning on you because you know the film a lot sure, better. Sure. And, and you know, this is, it, it's funny. You say that every time you come to it is different. So this hmm. is what I'm feeling the very first time in the okay. very fewest hours since seeing it. That's fantastic. I um, love that actually. Yeah. I got a little bit of pre-production. It's based on the book by Ron Hansen, which came out in 1983, which, you know, I looked on Audible. It was six hours long. So I read it in the last day. Wow. Um, it's, um, you know, that's the advantage of two and a half time speed is you get through that <laughs> stuff pretty quick. Um, what's Here's what's really weird about the book. If I had read the book before seeing the movie, right. I would just think it was sort of an odd book. It's uh -huh. very much exactly what happens in the movie. And even yeah. that narrate, have you read the book? Yeah. No, no, I've never read the book. No, no. Even all the like very poetic narration and uh -huh. stuff, that's in the book. Wow. But what's weird about it is that it's all of the pauses and the subtext and the the feel of the scenes that all the emotion comes from. So mm -hmm. if I hadn't seen the movie before reading the book, I don't know what I would have thought of it. Wow. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's really it's Casey Affleck's performance and how he's looking yeah. at Jesse James that makes it. It's not saying he looked at Jesse James. You right, know what I mean? right, right. Yeah. Um, but it is an interesting book. And it's not until 2004 that Warner Brothers uh, buys the rights and they hire Andrew Dominic to write and direct. Mm. And he's, you know, a New Zealand director. He had done Chopper with Eric Bana. Right. Um, yeah. uh, and apparently they wanted Brad Pitt from the beginning. That was that was a done deal. And then okay. the choice for Robert Ford was between Casey Affleck and Shia LaBeouf. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. I could totally see that Shia LaBeouf route. Absolutely. I think so too. You know, he's such an odd person. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that, that desire at that era to mainstream him into a big movie star. Yeah. This would have been a better role for him than some of that other stuff. I think, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, um, here's an interesting thing. When Brad Pitt took the deal, he had it written into his contract that Warner Brothers was not allowed to change the title. Mm. <laughs> because you could totally see why they would want to. It is a yeah. weird title. Yeah. Um, it was a film between uh, August and December of 2005. And it was all filmed in Canada, up in Calgary, Edmonton, Alberta, Winnipeg, and Manitoba. Mm. Um, so it's basically all shot on location. And that is the entirety of my pre-production. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I couldn't find a lot. I, there, wow. I couldn't find a lot of articles about it. There wasn't okay. a lot on Wikipedia. There wasn't very much on the disc. So that's really okay. all I know about it. Wow. Okay. But I do have one more question for you before we get into the film. Yeah. Which is prior to this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what was your experience of Jesse James? How did you come to Jesse James? What was your understanding oh. of that character, of that well, yeah. person? Yeah, I'd seen a number of films already. You know, there's what Frank and Jesse, there's uh, stuff from the past. You've seen the classic films of Jesse James. And I'd known about Jesse James, of course. Um, and it was pretty much Jesse James and Billy the Kid who've always been the two that kind of stay in my mind the most all the time. And, you know, even watching, what was it, The Long Riders, the one with all the different brothers on mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, so I've always had uh, um, just an, a, a familiarity with Jesse James 
Uh, I've even watched like little mini documentaries they've done on the History Channel and whatever. So I had a I had an idea of who Jesse James was, right? I had an idea of what Jesse James was and how important Frank James was to Jesse James uh, before um, I watched the movie. But I had no knowledge of Robert Ford. Absolutely zero. Um, and I think the movie and the book kind of lays down why, to be honest with you, as you watch the movie. He's not a particularly spectacular person in any way, shape, or form, even though he says near the beginning of the film that he thinks he's destined for this uh, fame and incredible, um, I don't know, notoriety for his uh, unique talents. So, yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. I Jesse James is one of those names, you know, like a legendary name, like Paul Bunyan or Mm -hmm. something. You know what I mean? Where it's just like, this is a part of America. It's just as you say, Jesse James and Billy the Kid. Mm -hmm. I knew very little bit about about Jesse James as a kid. Mm. My, You know, my first real memory of hearing about Jesse James is, is there is an episode of the Brady Bunch (laughs) where Bobby is obsessed with Jesse James. Yes. And he's like defending him and he thinks Jesse James is like a good guy. And then- Jesse James does some stuff in his dreams or whatever. Is that yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah. So I had to go back because I had the vaguest memory Damn. and then I had to go back and look <laughs> is that is that he writes. This is what happens. He writes like a paper like yeah. he was assigned to write. Who is your hero? And he wrote wow. Jesse James and Bob and Carol. Is that what their names are? Anyway, yeah. Mr. And Mrs. Brady are very concerned by this and they try to talk to him about who Jesse James really is. And Bobby's not hearing any of it. And so they find a book about the real Jesse James and Bobby won't listen to any of it. He's like, no, Jesse James, is a hero. And then they find the author of the book. Who's like an old guy and bring him to talk to Bobby who tells him, I wrote a whole book about Jesse James. Only he wasn't a hero to me. He wasn't. No. Jesse James killed my father. Hmm. And wow. then, and then Bobby has the dream of him on the train, which I watched. It's on YouTube. Right. It's got that like, tra- it's got that seventies dream kind of thing. Yeah. It's so silly. And Jesse <laughs> James comes on and murders the Brady Bunch. That's my dad. Dang. No, he shot my dad. Yeah. Yes. That's right. They're all dressed up in the old Western, school clothes. That's yeah. right. So that was like, and what's, here's what's so funny about that is that as much as it's the most ridiculous sitcom thing, I mean, it's oh, so dumb. Right. And yet that is the part of the crux or one of the cruxes of this movie, yeah. which is the lauding, the celebrity of Jesse James mm-hmm. versus the reality and how our perceptions of him are, right. you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and to me, it goes right to this really weird American thing, which is that we are a nation that is very puritanical in mm-hmm. a lot of ways and loves outlaws. Yep. We just yep. love them. This you I know. know. This it- I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I walked right into that. <laughs> we do though, man. We uh, love the outlaws. Oh, of course. Of um, course. And that is definitely a big theme within this m- movie. And mm-hmm. man, it really, well, let's just get into the film. Shall we? Yeah, let's do it. You know, I want to say one more thing okay. right for the very damn beginning before we start anything before our first shot. I think Roger Deakins might very well be the greatest cinematographer in the history of cinematographers. I don't disagree with you. Um, We just recently did a top 10 uh, Roger Deakins films Mm. uh, on top 10, and it was 
a joy to go back and sit. Usually with lists, I usually come up with them pretty quickly on that show. But with this one, I wanted to watch as many YouTube clips as possible for the Roger Deakins uh, films uh, that he did the cinematography for so I could savor them and make a real real strong decision about that list because I wanted to approach it with a certain kind of respect. And re-watching some of the scenes from this movie, dude, just, I, I'm so mad there's not a 4K version of this film because it is so fucking gorgeous, man. Every damn shot. Mm-hmm. It, it's like I was, I remember when we did Lawrence of Arabia and I, and oh, I yeah. had in my notes like, well, this shot is beautiful. Well, this shot yeah. is beautiful. I felt the same way watching this. It doesn't have the scale of Lawrence of Arabia. Right, right, right. It's very intimate, but man, every shot. And and this film shots out, starts off with one of these you know, um, one of these time-lapse shots uh, mm-hmm. of clouds moving fast. And this is something we're going to see a lot. And apparently this is what they shot when they were trying to set up scenes. Like wow. they just, oh, we're not quite ready to shoot, send a camera out, do a little time-lapse, get some clouds moving. And th- so they just had it. And right from the beginning, from the cinematography, you're like, oh, I'm in good hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was growing into middle age and was living then in a bungalow on Woodland Avenue. And there we see Brad Pitt. He installed himself in a rocking chair and smoked a cigar down in the evenings as his wife wiped her pink hands on an apron and reported happily on their two children. And the other thing we're seeing, in addition to this time lapse, is we see this strange effect, Mm -hmm. which is it's sort of partially out of focus, some part in focus. It's grainy. It looks really, I think, unlike anything in any, any movie. Yeah. And this is what that because I had to look up. Well, what is this? How do they do this? Because what Karen asked me, she's like, well, what kind of lens is that? What are they doing there? I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) So this is what this is, is they got a bunch of old wide angle lenses that are Mm. beat up and scratched up and or out of alignment. And they mounted him in top of the airy camera. And so that creates sort of the some parts are in focus and the lens is working properly and different parts are out of focus. And so different lenses would allow different parts of the shot to be clear and different parts blurry. And Roger Deakins claims that he invented this, this kind of vignetting because so it's like a blurry vignette. Yeah. And he called these lenses deaconizers. (laughs) See, Michael Bay is the only one with, with a little bit of an ego in Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I, the few the few interviews I've seen with Roger Deakins is he does have an ego. There's, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and, th- and their goal was to kind of create the sense of those sepia tone mm-hmm. old photographs, but do it in a way that no one had ever done it before. You know, it's fascinating. I just recently interviewed the um, cinematographer for Black Widow. Mm hmm. He was in the same school with Deacons, and him and Deacons apparently did not like each other while they were at school together. <laughs> and now, of course, they're they're colleagues and whatever, and they've kind of put that away. But he said because Deacons had a very strong point of view about what he thought worked for what he thought worked, and it caused some friction and whatever. So it's just very funny to think about that. There, there's a it was um, in Britain. It was all in Britain because he was yeah. studying in Britainism, even though he's a Mexican cinematographer. He studied in, in Britain. Yeah, so the. Deacons isn't Mexican. The other, the no, no, Black the other guy. guy. Yeah, right, right, I was right. like, wait, De- Deacons is from Mexico? No. <laughs> that doesn't sound right to me. Um, and we hear, again, it's these sort of poetic narration. His children knew his legs, the sting of his mustache against their cheeks. They didn't know how their father made his living or why they so often moved. They didn't even know their father's name. It's a great great opening and that's and that's hugh ross is doing the narration mm. and hugh ross is an editor on the film 
Oh, oh, that's interesting. Well, <laughs> yes. my understanding is there were a bunch of editors. Yeah. Because yeah. this movie had some problems in post. And I love this line. He also had a condition, condition that, was that was referred, referred to, to as granulated, granulated eyelids, eyelids. And it caused him to blink more than usual. As if he found creation slightly more than he could accept. It's just these shots of Brad Pitt. He's in the sunset. He's standing in front of the sun. We're just studying. It's like we're studying him at the yeah. beginning of this film. Rooms seemed hotter when he was in them. Rains fell straighter. Clocks slowed. Sounds were amplified. He considered himself a Southern loyalist and guerrilla in a civil war that never ended. What do you think you're thinking? I mean, you've seen this film many times. Yeah, well, this time around, what really struck me was it's funny that the film was about the deconstruction of Jesse James as a as a uh, legend, right? Even Jesse says, you know, don't with those dime store novels, like, don't believe any of that stuff. It's very similar to Logan, very similar to Unforgiven. You know, this isn't how it really is, the duck of death and stuff. But the film itself kind of uh, mythologizes Jesse. Yeah. And so it's fascinating that at the same time that you're um, kind of accepting that we're demystifying him, the film itself is putting him into these like really uh, emotional, moving, powerfully shot uh, sequences and scenes where Brad Pitt's just natural good lookingness comes through so powerfully, especially that shot where the fire is the skylines on fire and it's reflected back in his eyes and his face. And you're just like. This is so fascinating because you're showing a legendary guy, but you're trying to show me that he's a normal dude or no, I guess not normal, but just a, a human being. Um, and so it's just it's a great mixture that you're navigating as you watch this movie. And maybe it's even a test to you as the viewer. Like, are you going to slide into your natural desire to accept the mythology of Jesse or are you going to focus on the fact that we're demystifying that? deconstructing that rather uh, yeah well this is the thing i think that the, you the, what you just said at the end there mm. demystifying versus deconstructing yeah those are really different and that and that's why i'm gonna you know it's almost like maybe we should do a short three years from now with me watching it again <laughs> because it's gonna take me a while to think about it but like because yeah. that's where i am too i think because of the poetic nature of the language because of the incredible way that he shot they are elevating jesse james yeah but then the point of the – or some of the point of the film is that this is just a human – you know what it is? It's it's like the legendary status is placed upon him just yeah. like the beautiful shot is placed upon him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And then he is living within that. And, and it's not mm-hmm. that – I think any way we look at it, Jesse James is an impressive person. And I mean mm-hmm. impressive without any value judgment placed on it. Right. You know, just as a, you know, you could be a, a, a really good person or a really bad person and still be impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem like he was that. Yeah. We're in Blue Cut, Mississippi. It's September 7th, 1881. We're following behind a man with a dark hat as he's walking through a camp of the James gang. And we're hearing jokes about the Confederacy and about Jefferson Davis and Lincoln. And we see. Uh, for the first time, man, this cast is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know everyone was in it. So I was like, yeah. wait, is that Sam Rockwell? Was that Jeremy <laughs> Renner? <laughs> yep. Like, wh- oh, my God. Yep. Sam Shepard. Yep. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. And we get our first look in the scene of Jesse James, which I think is uh, Sam Rockwell characters. Charlie has spit on his boot. 
Charlie spilled over my boots. Sorry, 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 Jesse. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at how many Oscar winners. Yeah. In this whole crew here, or Oscar, at least Oscar nominees. And we're in Blue Cut, Blue Cut Missouri, not Mississippi. It's Blue Cut, Missouri. Just to uh, yeah, Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, Blue Cut, Missouri. Um, and we have Casey Affleck, who is Robert Ford. Mm-hmm. And he is very much the observer. And I like just the choice that they call, call Chow and he sits down to join the group just as they stand up and leave him. Yeah, throughout the film, there is this real prevalent feeling that everyone ignores him and he feels unseen. So yes. he has to go in his mind to extreme measures to be seen because he wants to be noticed. He wants to matter. Other people would be quite happy being forgotten in a room and quite happy being forgotten at a chow line or whatever. Or when they sit down, other people leave. They're quite happy in their own personhood. But he strove for attention. He strove for the spotlight in some way, shape, or form at a young age. And you can tell here, seeing everybody just ignore him, they treat him as nothing, you know. Um, and by the way, we said that this is an amazing cast. The casting director is Molly Finn, mm. uh, who also cast LA Confidential, Avatar, Titanic, Wonder Boys, a bunch of James Cameron older movies. Yeah. Um, but this cast is spectacular. Yep. And we're about to meet another cast member that you just mentioned is that we is that Bob Ford walks up to see Sam Shepard, who plays yeah. Frank James. This this exchange here, Steve, you see Casey Affleck. This is Bob Ford. Right. Once again, like I just said, he is wanting to connect to somebody who's famous. He's like a fan. He's like a fan. He's totally. like a fanboy. He's a total fanboy. He's an uber nerd. That's another thing about this film. It's almost prescient in 2007 for the explosion of nerddom that happens starting with the Marvel movies through the last 13 years where people who have a little bit of that uh, thing that Casey Affleck has, the character that he's portraying as Bob Ford, the kind of desire to come close and, and oh, if I could just show you how good I am, maybe, you you know, I've had people walk up to me, hey, man, will you watch me do trivia? Like, will you talk to Christian to get me into the schmoder? Like, it's you see people who just kind of shoot their shot. And what he's doing here in this moment is shooting his shot uh, with Frank James and he's trying to, you know, he's trying to work Frank James. And this is, and he's 19 years old, Steve. What does this kid know about working a legendary guy who's been out there and had to confront guns and lawmen and robbery to stay alive? And he thinks he's going to get worked by a kid who's still learning how to work a room? It's just hilarious to me to watch him try to fumble around. And Frank... Eventually, Sam Shepard said, you know, I don't know what it, about, what it is about you, son, but the more you talk, the less I want you near me. It's just so brilliant. So once again, he's rejected by something else uh, that is a symbol in his life. You know? Well, the, you said so much there that I, I think. Oh, sorry. We sorry need, yeah. no, why are you sorry for saying <laughs> great things? Sometimes I just talk a lot. So, yeah. No, but, listen, you don't have to talk to me about talking too much. <laughs> I, think, I think I do that pretty well myself. Um, he, here's what I think is so interesting is the idea of the fanboy and yeah. celebrity is so key to this mm-hmm. in that what's so weird is it's the internal feeling of specialness yeah. that Bob Ford walks around with. And he has this line where he says, I honestly believe I'm destined for great things, Mr. James. I got qualities that don't come shining through right at the outset. Mm-hmm. You want to know what I thought about? What's that? You know when you watch whatever reality competition show, the most the the best example being American Idol, and you have that person who can't sing for shit, and they <laughs> say, "I just know in my heart I'm a rock star." Yeah, I can feel it. 
And you see this everywhere. You see this yeah. with actors. You see this with every – I know I'm a great writer. I know I have this feel. Or, or even before the fight, you know, whether it's UFC yeah. or a boxing match, they go to the person and they say, I just know in my heart that once I step into that ring, nobody can beat me, you know. And sometimes that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but the belief in oneself has nothing to necessarily – there's no correlation between the belief and the ability. Yeah. And, and the thing, too, is this guy knows all about the James brothers. He knows they were guerrillas in the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they have experiences that he just doesn't have. Right. And, uh, and, and But this also, this moment that you talk about with Frank James, where, you know, he, you know, he says, basically, I don't want to be around you. Yeah. I don't want to be around Bob Ford either. He is weird yeah. and creepy, and he makes me feel uncomfortable. And the, one of the main questions for the entire film mm -hmm. is why is he kept around? Yeah. Well, it's weird, right? Cause this is the, like Frank knows to reject him. And, and cause I think Frank was a more, just a more rigid person about things. Very aware of what he wasn't as caught up. It seems like as the film portrays Jesse to be caught up in his thoughts, caught up in his uh, own ruminations on the world. Right. It seemed like Frank was very much more of the simple, of the simplistic approach to the world, very real about knowing what matters, what doesn't. We're going to get to the scene in a few moments where he kind of, he stops the game completely and he makes that decision that night. There's no hemming and hawing and going back and forth. There's no discussion. It's over. And so it's just as how Frank approaches the world, whereas Jesse is more of a thinker. He's more of a philosopher in the approach, at least the way he's presented in this film. So to me, this is where, uh, why, Bob Ford gets to hang around Jesse James so much because Frank immediately rejects him immediately yeah. rejects him and and because he knows what this kid is the danger that this kind of kid can be you know because sometimes with these fanboys you give them too much they start to think they have way more license with you than they do because in their minds you've been a part of their world for such of a course. long time that they have created or manufactured a relationship that doesn't exist and so this is the thing that I think is happening here. Frank understands, like, oh, he's probably had guys want to join his crew just like Bob Ford. Nothing, nothing particularly unique about Bob Ford at all. And so he just immediately, you know, knows to reject the kid. Well, that's what's so weird about this movie. It's like this movie is so much a, a, a dissertation or a, a mm. rumination on celebrity. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know? A and, thousand and the, percent. And that the power of what young 12 year old Bob Ford experienced by reading these little nickel novels mm. and seeing all these stories about uh, Jesse James compared mm. to the power of a YouTuber that my son watches. There's no comparison <laughs> like the because and, and what I mean is, is that Bob Ford never saw Jesse James's face. All he saw was words on a page. Right. right. Whereas people that that are fans of the outlaw. They have watched your whole career. They they could watch literally hundreds of hours of being in the room with you and hearing your voice. So the degree that someone might feel they built an actual relationship with you is okay. is much stronger than what what actually Bob Ford was experienced. Oh, you know? maybe, maybe. Yeah, not that I'm comparing the outlaw no, necessarily please. to Jesse James. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. I'm a Z level celebrity, if anything. Please. Well, and also not a. Uh, psychopathic killer <laughs> yeah, as far as right, i know exactly exactly yeah no um in the midst of this conversation <laughs> with frank james we cut away to hear our main other guys dick little wood mm -hmm. height 
Charlie, which is Bob Ford's brother, Charlie Ford and Ed, uh, and they are talking just a dirty conversation about uh, yeah. the nether regions of women, and it's <laughs> it's a very funny, yes. and and it's b it shows this weird elevated Western language that we're going to hear throughout the mm-hmm. film. But also, it shows you the kind of people you're going to be hanging out with when you're part of this gang. And it's also remember the voiceover says Hugh Ross says that the gang had disbanded. And all the main characters of the gang had gone on to do other things or gone away from the This is what's left. This is what they're picking up, Jesse and Frank, to just kind of like uh, employ right. as a gang. And this is not the highest level of outlaw that you can find these these four nincompoops having conversations about uh, women. Well, and, and, and I'm going to really debate whether or not I'm going to put this line actually in okay. the audio. But, but this line, it, it, it's interesting to... to Note that yeah. one can be extremely articulate and have interesting use of language saying something that is really, really offensive. Yes. They got a noisy quim on account of the fact <laughs> that they use their cunnings as a saddlebag to carry sundries across the plains. That line is offensive, but the mm. the use of language. And I, and I, if you watch Ed's facial expression after Dick says this, oh, yeah. Yeah. of just shock and amazement. <laughs> <laughs> that he could say something so filthy and so articulate. Uh, he is so impressed with Dick's ability to use words. Yeah. Oh, oh. You, 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 you got a mouth. You can talk. You can talk that one. Um, but, you know, Ed is Garrett Dillahunt. And Garrett Dillahunt is so great as an actor playing status. Uh, you know, something I really watch, Steve, with actors. Can they play multiple levels of status? And Garrett, I've seen him play villain. Mm-hmm. And I've seen him play all the way. And uh, remember him in uh, No Country for Old Man? He's Tommy Lee Jones's guy. Mm. Then you see him on that TV show with um, Martha Plimpton. I can't remember the name of it. Where he isn't all that smart. And you get this. This is like the lowest rung you can get because he's not a, in any way, shape or form a smart guy. And he plays it so well, uh, you know, and he's so impressed with the fact that um, uh, Dick can string a few words together and make them sound eloquent. Yeah. It, it well, and, and I love Dick's line. Who says you can hide things in vocabulary? Ah, <laughs> uh, I like Paul Schneider. He's he's such an interesting actor. He is he's and he's really really great in this. Mm. And, and and I love even that that you know Ed tells this story of a sexual encounter with uh, a prostitute, but how it was for real. And I love that Ed says, <laughs> "Yeah, sure, she'd been with other people, but the kind of thing she said to me." People just don't say unless they really mean it. Because <laughs> he's convinced and he wants yeah. Dick's help to maybe like, if you could help me talk to her, or write her a letter that somehow I could get this girl. And Dick Little says, my love says she would marry only me. And Jove himself could not make her care. For what women say to lovers, you'll agree. One writes on running water or on air. <laughs> and and then he begs him to, oh, yeah, write that. He's like, nah. Poetry don't work on whores. <laughs> and that's that. And that's that. <laughs> well, what's so funny, too, is what that mean the meaning of this poetry, which I actually don't know where it came from. Mm. Um, but the meaning of it is that he's saying the things that she said to you that yeah. you think were so special or bullshit. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's goes, her job. She's a prostitute. Yeah. And exactly. Ed goes, yeah, write that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Now Bob Ford sits down with Jesse James. Am I too late to wish you a happy birthday? How'd you know? 
you'd be surprised at what I got stored away. You know, he's trying these little tactics to try to get in. Rather than just, he's so unconfident in himself that he's trying these kind of tactics to connect with these people rather than just, if you don't say anything, your actions will speak volumes, right? If you're, if you keep to yourself, you, you know, you say hi to people, make the connection, and then the robbery happens and you handle it and acquit yourself well, you don't got to say, I just want to prove my worth. Just go and prove your worth. But Robert is not in that place. Again, he's 19 years old. The probably first time he's left the house to do anything. So he's trying to use these tactics with Jesse. And he even lies about the conversation with Frank. Oh, your brother Frank and I wish had a real nice visit. Just chit-chatting about this and that over there. <laughs> the thing about it, it's not just that he lies, but it's a terrible lie. Yeah, because, he overinflates it. Yeah. Well, because yeah. Jesse, all Jesse has to do is go talk to Frank and know that it's a lie. Like That's true. Frank doesn't even want to be around him. Right. Much less chit chatting away about this and that. <laughs> and then what happens and this is and and maybe this is the whole the whole question. Yeah. Is that Jesse changes the t- topic strongly. Must have been a hundred subjects in Lord, you want this do need and we start talking about dumplings and noodles and Fayette and this woman that could suck noodles up her nose. <laughs> Let me ask you this first. Why does yeah. he change the subject? Why does he go off on this noodle thing? I think the idea of him and Frank talking, do you know what I'm saying? I think he's got a kind of love hate relationship with Frank. So mm. I don't want to hear about you talking to Frank and whatever. And it's the fact that you went to Frank before you went to me, right? There's a thing there too. So to me, I think he's just changing the subject. But a because I think he's also sees this kid as irrelevant, and B because um, he brought up Frank. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that because because mm. to me, I think and, well, and this is the question: Does Jesse James see through Bob the way that Frank James just saw through Bob? I don't think initially he does, but I don't think it doesn't. I don't think it matters to him either. Like you said, he's a psycho. He's a psychopath, so it doesn't matter to him. Well, and that is how it ends. After going off on this noodle thing, he says he clearly knows that Bob is trying to to suck up to him in order to be part of the gang because uh, he says, Well, I don't like to harp on a subject. I don't care. It comes with me. Never have. That's why they call me gregarious. (laughs) So he like knows the guy wants to be part of the gang, changes the subject in this thing, and then kind of drops, I don't care. You know, and we are setting up to rob a train. Here's another interesting thing about the film. Okay. We meet Jesse James at this moment. Yep. We don't meet Jesse James. We don't start when he's a kid. We don't see anything mm-hmm. from the Civil War. We don't even see his first big robberies or when he was, became this famous successful robber. We are seeing him. We're meeting him on the downward slope. Yeah. Towards the end of his career. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out. I mean, Jesse James is linked to so much stuff that has to do with America and mm-hmm. so much stuff that has to do with the Civil War and so much stuff that has to do with kind of lost cause ideology and stuff. Jesse James was a really bad person. Yes. You know, I think it's important, like the, the number of atrocities that are, are put to him, both during the Civil War and after, is a mm-hmm. lot. You know, yeah. he's a scary guy. And there, yeah. the, there are all sorts of part of the stories that were being told of him was framing him as a, Rob, a Robin Hood type character mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. he was in the post, you know, Civil War Reconstruction era fighting back against the Republican Reconstructionists who were stealing from the South and taking money from them, stealing from them and giving it to the Southerners. There's a no evidence whatsoever that he was discriminating <laughs> in who he robbed. And yeah. there's no evidence whatsoever that he was giving money away right, right you know 
that that's just not that's not true. <laughs> um, it's nighttime. Again, I'm going to say the cinematography is incredible. The way yeah. we're using shadows and light, and we hear sort of a Confederate song, and then Jesse kneels down, closes his eyes, puts his ear on the railroad track, and listens. Yeah. And it's a great moment because it's sort of, it takes you a second to understand what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And he opens his eyes because the train is coming. Right on schedule, Buck! And they all pull on their masks. And this is what Jesse James, what the James gang did, is their masks look very much like Ku Klux Klan masks. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see any evidence that Jesse James was part of the Klan. No, I don't think so either. I mean, um, he was hardcore Southern guy, but he wasn't that. And then the camera pushes past them into blackness. You hear the train, and then the light of the train headlight turns the corner into frame. Yeah. The shot is unbelievable. The shot of Jesse James silhouetted holding the lantern with that yep. light behind him. Sweet Mary, Mother of God, man, it's gorgeous. And then we see the light as it moves through the trees, illuminating yeah. and darkening across our bad guys. And what I really wonder, because mm-hmm. I haven't seen Dominic's other films, you know, yeah. is like, how much of this is Roger Deakins? I think a lot of this is Roger Deakins because I've seen, was it Chopper? The Chopper, one with Eric yeah. Bana. I saw, I, no way is any of that in Chopper. Uh, so um, I think this is a unique film in, in Andrew Dominic's career. Very, very unique. And Deakins might have just been like, I want to do a Western. I'm in the mood. Yeah. This is a possibility. Let me play with it. And I'm sure Dominic was so respectful of Deakins that he's like, whatever you want to do, I'm cool, man. Let's make it work. Well, it's so weird you saying he wanted to do a a Western. This came out the same year as No Country for Old Men. Yeah, which he he, did both of them. He did both of them. Yeah. Um, And they built this huge barricade to stop the train. I love that the camera's like on the barricade and you see the train kind of hit us and push us back Mm. for the camera. And then we go into the robbery. Yeah. And we have kind of multiple parts of the robbery. One part of the robbery is our gang going through and robbing the passengers. And the other part of the robbery is the guys who work for the railroad company who have barricaded themselves behind the door, which just has a small lock. And it seems as if to some degree they are going through a ritual. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. know that lock's not going to keep the James gang out. The right. James gang knows they got to put, they're going to put the lock on it because they have to do that. Cause that's their job. Hey boys. He's all for me. And what we've heard is there's going to be $100,000 in the safe. Yeah. And he orders him to open the safe, refuses. Do it! And then a hard hit right to the head. All of the violence seems to be anticipated and yet shockingly sudden, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, there's so many things all the way up until the death of Jesse James or even the death of Robert Ford, yeah, you yeah. know, where you kind of know it's coming. And yet yeah. when it happens, it still shocks you. Yes. Uh, I love the moment of, I think it's Frank who's robbing a guy who doesn't speak English very well. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. By the way, apparently on this robbery, there was one person that Jesse robbed who uh, only had 50 cents. Oh, my God. And Jesse took his last 50 cents, looked at it, reached into his pocket and handed him a dollar fifty. <laughs> That's so maybe maybe I have to take back the whole thing about him uh, yeah. not giving to the poor. <laughs> well, a dollar fifty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we're pulling stuff out of the safe, and it ain't no hundred thousand dollars. Nope, Dick. This yeah. ain't no hundred thousand dollars, your Dick. 
And now Jesse's mad. You down on your knees. Why? You ought to pray. I'm going to kill you. There's blood flowing from his head. Jesse gets over him. His face super intense, cocks the gun. Seconds, moments away from killing this guy when Ed yells, Don't shoot him! Don't shoot him! Jesse brings himself up under control and says to Ed, Don't tell me what I can and cannot do, Ed. And the note I wrote down is very dangerous at yeah. this moment. I One of the interesting things watching this film... I've seen a lot of gears from Brad Pitt. Yeah. I've seen crazy. I've seen intense. I've seen super charismatic. I've seen funny. I've seen goofy. I didn't know that he could be this scary. Yeah. I mean, California, you get a glimpse in that mm. film because, of course, he's a serial killer in that film. But, like, you get the glimpse of what he can be, right? It, but this is the film where he shows this kind of, like, really scary side of him. Yeah. That is devoid of emotion in those moments and is very willing to kill anybody, which is great work by Brad Pitt because that um, helps you to believe that this was a guy legitimately to be feared by everybody, that right. he could kill at any moment and not think twice about it. We're riding away. The music is somber. Beautiful music throughout this film from Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. And we hear through, through from the narration. Chicago newspaper publishers made a great deal of the blue cut train robbery, alleging that in no state but Missouri would the James brothers be tolerated for 12 years. <laughs> well, and this is the thing is there was a good portion of the country that was a he, he was a hero. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and so there were a lot of people that didn't want him brought in. Or a lot right. of people that probably aided and abetted or turned the other, you know, turned away when he came through town because they didn't want him to go to jail. Right. And we see Frank sitting alone and the camera pushes in on him and he looks up and Jesse and Frank look at each other mm. and then Jesse walks away. Yeah. He's watching Frank from behind a wall and Frank notices him watching him. And doesn't say anything, right? And it's such an uh, interesting window into the relationship because Frank has probably caught Jesse staring at him throughout his entire life. For Even probably when he was a young teenager, Jesse admiring him to a degree. Um, and even the way it's shot and the way it's framed, uh, Steve, it's Frank who's the dominant. It's yeah. Jesse who's the submissive in the shot. He looks almost hat in hand. He's hidden by half the wall, the corner of the wall. He's not fully. And Frank looks up, notices him, and just goes right back to doing what he's doing. And then Jesse walks away. But it's such a window into their relationship. You know? Well, I think what's weird, and I, I, you know, you know, I think you know much more about these guys than I do. But mm. it seems to me that Jesse is the star, but Frank is the leader. Yes. Because Frank doesn't need the spotlight. Right. Frank was very clear about what needs to get done. That's what drove him. And if you remember uh, Frank James in True Grit, he's the old guy when uh, the when Elizabeth Marvel shows up, she says, keep your seat, trash. That's Frank mm. James she's talking to. But Frank James very much a hard-edged man who did not do this for fame or valor or anything like that. It just was a way of life for him, you know. And then Jesse runs into Bob unexpectedly. Did you miss a crept up on Cat's Bob? Yeah, I'll wager that's the first and last time you'll ever be caught off guard. So 
one thing we didn't mention is when yeah. Bob first went to talk to Frank, he made a ton of noise. He didn't yep. sneak up on Frank at all. Frank yep. knew he was coming the whole time. Frank had his hand on his gun. And in this moment, mm -hmm. Jesse doesn't see Bob coming, right. we think. So he says. But then throughout this whole movie, we're going to have people appear mm -hmm. next to each other and surprise them, sneak yeah. up on them in one way or another. And yeah. of course, the most, the climactic moment of the movie, spoiler alert, it's in the title, Robert Ford kills yeah. Jesse James, is a moment where we don't actually know the reality, but yeah. it's possible Bob Ford snuck up from on him behind, and it's possible Jesse James knew he was coming the whole time. Yeah. And the yeah. movie certainly has an opinion on that. So yeah. this idea of sneaking up on people is really a key thing that we're going to come back to a lot. But also, this is part of the fandom, too. Yeah. Like in his mind, him being able to sneak up on Jesse is a little like, oh, I'm able to do something not a lot of people can do. See, I do have talents. And again, I'm going to make this comparison and maybe I'll do that throughout the whole show and maybe it'll irritate some people. But it's like people walk up to me and try to stump me in a movie trivia question in a bar, you know, like, oh, I got the outlaw right? or I stumped the outlaw and it's like. For God's sakes, man. So it's just this kind of thing. You and and um and it's a way of pushing the boundaries and and blurring the lines between like I don't want to say fandom in a way that's arrogant or anything like that, but people who know you and your and who you are and your celebrity status in in Jesse James, right? He is like he makes these little comments. Um and then later he'll make another comment like, Oh, uh, I reckon it's the, you know, sneaking up on you and blah I could I bet you couldn't sneak up on just James in the past when he's Jesse's taking a bath later on in the film. So he's got those things there. He's like pushing the boundaries. He's pushing the boundaries. and it's a little bit of foreshadowing for when he does kill Jesse later on in the movie, but you know, he's try he's trying to establish himself and he's trying to dig at Jesse a little bit in a really confusing um, you know, um, not direct way. I am so glad that you've made the outlaw fandom comparison because you made me realize <laughs> something I didn't quite understand before, but I think is really key, which is that is that what's happening when your fan comes up and wants to stump you in a bar is mm. I think part of it, if you, if they thought you were the worst competitor in the Schmodown, they wouldn't come up to you and try to stump you in the bar. Of course not. No, is no. that what they've done is they've built you up and Bob <laughs> has built Jesse up yeah. in their minds to be something beyond ordinary. <laughs> right. And Which is ridiculous. I am very ordinary. You're, you, you're really good at what you do, but you're a human. I mean, yeah, like you're, a human, you're a human and, and right. you don't in fact know everything. And you're, <laughs> yeah, no. you know, and you train for the schmo down. You're not yes. in training at every moment for every possible question <laughs> that any schmuck could ask you. Yeah, right. But what's happening is that if they stump you, because yeah. they built you up, they have now stumped someone who is bigger, is better than anybody. They stumped the right. best. Right. If they didn't build you up in their minds, it wouldn't be interesting to stump you. That's a fair point. Yeah. And they take that moment home, you know? And so, yeah. And so Bob has built Jesse yeah. James up in his mind. So anything that he does to mm -hmm. stump Jesse James means that he is at Jesse James's level, which yeah, and is beyond human. Exactly. And it he's right. And it validates his point of view about himself. But it also um, uh, once again, it tears down the walls in the difference between him and Jesse. 
so that, you know, people talk about, oh, killing someone, killing a, was it, what is the Richard Harris saying over given? Like, killing a, you don't just kill a queen. You can't right. kill a king. Your hand would shake. Your, right. blah, 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 blah. The gun would drop, right? This idea, once you've built someone up, then you create a relationship. You create a scenario in your mind where you are not worthy to kill that person. But once you are able to, you know, kind of destroy that barrier, then you start to see that you can actually attack this person at a certain level. And so I think this is what Bob systematically does throughout the movie. Well, and imagine, if you will, that the person that stumped you in the bar, they believe that their status is based on your status. Right. So if your status is huge and they've beaten you, then their status is based on your status. They have, in fact, assassinated you in the bar in order to take your status, which is exactly what Bob Ford is going to do in this film, Mm -hmm. is that he is trying to steal Jesse James's status. Right. Rather than work for it. Exactly. Rather than earn it. Rather than, you know, do it by their do it by their own hard work and their work and their connections and being patient and building it up over time. They think uh, or Bob thinks, uh, you know, I can just this is a shortcut to fame. This is a shortcut to notoriety. And sometimes the same thing with some of the fans who come in and try to stump me like, oh, why don't you do the work and try to get into the showdown? Oh, I've sent videos. I can't get into it or they don't accept me. They're Oh, so I'm going to do this. Well, it, you know, it means nothing. It means nothing if you haven't worked for it. It means nothing if you haven't built it up. It means nothing if you haven't put in the time, taken the hits, done the matches, built the thing up. It means nothing. And that's sometimes people forget that extra step that is a massive step to get to the situation that they want to get to. Well, it's like you could watch a a, a film of mine or listen to an episode of The Cinephiles and find things that we did wrong, that we got wrong, that we said wrong, the points that we missed. And you might be totally right. That doesn't mean you could make the movie better than me or make The Cinephiles better than you and I. Yeah, right. Because there's nine million things we did right. And hours and hours, thousands of hours of work dedicated to doing the job right. You know, Mm -hmm. being able to find fault is is easy. Uh, It's real easy. And that's what's so frustrating is those people who reach out to you only to comment on the things you've missed. Only to comment on the things. Instead of ever sending a compliment, they just ding you for the things you've missed. And I, I, those comments infuriate the shit out of me because I just go, you've never reached out to me at all, ever. And you want to reach out to me now. And the only time it is to point something out I did wrong or some some mistake I made or uh, I misspoke in some way. It's like, come on, man. Come on. It's so funny. Like for me, if someone points out a fact that I missed, I'm like, okay, you know, thanks. Right. Um, But if someone... Critic, there's a different kind of criticism which feels right. very personal. Yes, that's a different. That's a different thing. The yeah. the one other thing, by the way, and I, I just I, I know this is a weird digression, but I think what's important about this, unlike someone who's uh, idolized the outlaw and then stumps him in a bar, yeah, is the person that Bob idolizes is a psychopath. Yes, yes, and not only is he a psychopath. But it's bullshit. There's all yeah. half of the thing that he's idolizing isn't even true. Right. You know, and just, Jesse even tells him it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's interesting is this is now, I think, at least the third time that Bob Ford has lied in very few conversations. And this one is about whether or not he's 19 or 20. Right. And he lies about that. And in two of them, he admits the lie. Yeah. You know, because he lies to Frank and then admits the lie. And then he lies to Jesse about chit-chatting with Frank, which he doesn't admit. And then he lies about being 20 and then immediately says, no, no, I'm I'm, I'm not 20. I'm 19. Yeah, you feel older than that, though, don't you? (laughs) Casey Affleck smiles 
and turns his head and says, "Yeah, dude." <laughs> his performance. Oh man, is. I mean, there are things we might say about him personally, but yeah, sure. His performance in this movie, you know, it's really interesting, by the way. So he gets nominated for best supporting actor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think he's actually the lead of the movie. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Brad Pitt's the star. Yeah, but it's Bob Ford who's driving the narrative. It's his Bob story. Bob Ford. It's his, it's his story. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and then it's so odd. We have a scene with Frank and Charlie. And, and what's funny is, is Charlie has gone up. He's obviously been put up by his brother, Bob, yeah. about wanting to be a sidekick, which is what Bob asked Frank in the first place. Right. Uh, and Frank's response is, I about heard all I want to about sidekicks. Sound like your damn brother. Yeah. Well, I'll be square with you. It's Bob who put me up to it. He's, uh -huh. he's, he's got plans for the James boys. I can't even get the hang of They're that complicated. <laughs> The arrogance of not, he doesn't just want to be on the team. He doesn't yeah, want no. to be a sidekick. He's got plans for right. the James boys. Right, right. And Frank basically says, it's over. After tonight, there'll be no more shenanigans. And jot that down in your little diary. <laughs> I love the way he says that. Yeah. You jot down your little diary. Sam Shepard, we, we said it in the right stuff, but he has, he has a way of holding space and power Dude. effortlessly. Yeah. He can be quite chilling when he wants to be as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you know, this is, it's so funny. This film is full of, you know, you've got, you've had some complaints against Casey Affleck and certainly complaints. Against, certainly Jessica had some really strong words about Sam Shepard. And I think um, there were even some complaints about Jeremy Renner. Uh, so, you know, oh, you've got these kind of interesting character, interesting actors in this movie who are all basically trying to out chilling each other or out threatening each other so i mean man this is a cast of heavy heavy oh yes yeah. i oh, mean yeah. put, putting aside um things that have been said about them personally right but in terms of actors all of these people have a lot in the tank that they can mm -hmm. bring to these roles yep i love the end of the scene when, when he says that he's you know retiring essentially and charlie asks well how are you gonna make your living maybe i sell shoes <laughs> And then we cut to, which for me, having just watched this for the first time, is so unexpected, which is Jesse James and Robert Ford sitting on the rocking chairs, smoking cigars and chatting. Hmm. Why did Jesse James invite him to this conversation? I think he feels like, um, I think in some, um, how can I say this? In some subconscious way, because obviously Jesse's never seen a therapist. This is his need to have some kind of attention for him. In some ways, Stephen, it was striking me as I was watching this movie. In some ways, Bob provides the attention to Jesse that Bob himself is seeking. So hmm. the, Jesse likes the adulation, but he likes to control the adulation. So he knows that Bob is like a young brother he can like push around and make fun of and blah, blah, blah. And he'll just take it because... Inherently, his energy is about kissing Jesse's ass. And so Jesse, I feel, in the movie, likes having that around him because he has a lot of questions himself about what he's doing, where he's going, what he's going to do next, all of that. So I think that's part of the, the desire to keep Bob around. What I can't get my head around yeah. is that Bob is weird and creepy, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah. and Frank sees through it right away. Right. And there are times in this film where you feel like Jesse is seeing everything. He oh, sees yeah. through everybody's lies. Yes. And that to me, at, at, at what point is he seeing through Bob to see who Bob really is? 
And that's what works against what you just said. Cause what, cause I feel like what you just said also that he, he, mm-hmm. he needs this person to listen to him, to share with that. He's seen, right. some, except that Bob is so creepy and so weird that it's like, that wouldn't be the person I would pick. You know what well, I mean? Right. It wouldn't be the person you would pick. Cause you're not Jesse James. You're not a psychopath. Is, as far as you know. Well, yeah, I'd be very surprised if you were the psychopath I have in between hit, I have the two of it. us. <laughs> okay, outlaw. <laughs> I can't believe I woke up this morning wondering if my daddy would loan me his overcoat. And here it is just past midnight. I've already robbed a railroad train. I'm sitting in a rocking chair chatting with none other than Jesse James. It's it's like Will Ferrell, <laughs> you know. We are here laughing, having fun. It's just that you don't speak what's happening. You just let it happen, be in that moment, and roll on through it. But it's a it's a total fanboy. That. That's a yeah. total fanboy moment. Absolutely, um, got to call it out. Yeah. Many's the night I stayed up, my eyes open, and my mouth open, just reading about your escapades in the Wide Awake Library. They're all lies, you know. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, all lies. And Bob has a reaction. Again, there's so much playing. This is why the book is so much better having watched the film, because there's so much playing on Casey Affleck's face throughout the whole film that when he says all lies, you know, he -hmm. has this reaction. And then he says, yeah, of course they are. (laughs) Right. Because he's he's trying to seem like he's as smart as Jesse, but he believed all the lies. Exactly. he's, He's trying to play it off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the moment where Brad Pitt says, you don't have to keep smoking that if it's making you money. <laughs> because, and that's the moment, just like you said, Steve, Brett's, I mean, uh, Jesse sees through Bob. And in that moment, he sees that Bob is just trying to be cool like him. Yeah. He's trying to connect him. He's trying to be, you know, like uh, uh, do the things that Jesse does. So right. in a way, he's like a mini me. He's trying to be a mini me of Jesse. So this is one of the weirdest cuts. And, and, and as I mentioned, there was a lot of editing issues on this film. Mm, mm. We cut to uh, Frank and we hear Alexander Franklin James would be in Baltimore when he would read of the assassination of Jesse James. He had spurned his younger brother for being peculiar and temperamental. But once he perceived that he would never see Jesse again, Frank would be wrought up, perplexed, despondent. And then we see Jesse smoking in the green grass near a water pump and he sits up and Bob is watching him through a window. Yep. Why do we cut to Frank hearing about the death of his brother at this moment in the film? I think because we're not going to see him again. And so we'll just wrap that up here and move on from that. And it's also Jesse's last real familial connection uh, Jeremy Renner be damned. It's his last familial right. connection kind of leaving him. Um, and, uh, you know, in a way, I think it's kind of a transition moment, too. At least that's my my guess. I think you're 100% right. Because um, mm-hmm. I know in the book, we hear it's that exact bit of narration is in the book. But yeah. it happens after Jesse's death, which is where yeah. you would expect it to happen. And right. I think you're right, is that we needed to touch in with Frank. Yeah here because otherwise he's lost for two hours of the film right right and we hear from jesse my brother and me hardly on speaking terms these days um and jesse has some snakes yeah <laughs> and bob has like a reaction to them they ain't succulents i like and they're devil clean but if a man skins them 
fries and garlic and oil. Mercy, them's good eating. <laughs> uh, have you ever eaten snake? Nope. I have. Ooh, okay. It was okay. Yeah. Tastes like chicken? Eh, I would say a little bit uh, greasier than chicken. Okay. But, all right. But it's all right. right. Tastes like alligator. Okay. <laughs> It was so funny. I, I had, I, you know, those things pop up on Facebook of like, how many of these have you eaten or how many times oh, yeah. you've been to? And there's some of posts and the thing said like, I bet you haven't eaten more than six. And the person who posted is like, I had 12 and I posted 24. And then my <laughs> sister posted 32 because <laughs> my sister is eating. She loved all the weird stuff when she's traveling. She, she'll, she'll go for she'll it. She'll try. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, we were we we traveled to Southeast Asia and we went to the Taipei Zoo mm-hmm. and you know, I ordered like some Chinese some sausage and noodles or something and my sister ordered the chicken feet, the blood soup and and jellyfish. <laughs> <laughs> Which were all delicious, you know. All right. Um anyway, and he kills the snakes and the snakes keep moving. I give them names. Such as such as enemies. I give them names of enemies. And it is at this moment that he says, Go tell Wood and Charlie get the gallons together. Me too? Ah, you can stay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've given the snakes the names of my enemies and yeah. then killed them. And then in the next moment, I tell him to have Charlie and Wood go, mm-hmm. but have Bob stay. Right. Are these connected? Possibly because, of course, he's going to go on a little run trying to possibly kill uh, all the people that are in the, that he's right now sending away. So fair point. Well, and does he at what point does he see Bob as an enemy? This is like yeah. the key question in this whole film. True. How much does he see through this guy? Yeah. Well, and the other key question, and maybe you you might have a much better sense of this than me. At what point is Bob his enemy? I don't know that Bob is ever his enemy. I think Bob, uh, once he deconstructs Jesse for himself and reduces Jesse to an equal, then Bob sees the opportunity to take advantage of Jesse's trust in him to kill him to get notoriety for himself. That's it. I don't think Bob ever sees himself as the enemy of Jesse. I think he sees Mm. Jesse as a... Once he dehumanizes Jesse, right? Because he already put him up on a pedestal. Once he equal, you know, achieves some level of equality and friendship with Jesse, then he turns him into a human being. By turning him into a human being, he no longer has the mystical value of Jesse. So now he becomes a means to an end. So in a way, he's dehumanized him after he's demythologized demythologized him in his mind. Jesus Christ. Sorry. Myth- demythologized. Yeah. Is that a word? I don't know. I if don't think so, but I like <laughs> okay. it. We can use All it from right. now on. Um, I, I totally agree. And I think I'm going to change the way I put the question is at what okay. point does he do that? When does mm. he make that decision? Um, mm. And I'm not sure when it is. Yeah. I think maybe um, we can answer that as we go through the yeah. movie. Um, and then, and this is the other thing about Bob, because now he's going to go off and tell Wood and Charlie, you guys got to go away and I get to stay. Yeah. Bob's a dick. <laughs> yes, he is. Because he's seeking status. Yeah. And in that moment, instead, because he has no social skills, he's terrible. I would imagine that he's on the spectrum. Yo, he yeah, has just yeah. a hard time with social skills. So he takes this moment to be cocky uh, because, and to be fair, these guys have probably picked on him his whole life. Yep. So now he feels he can like throw it in their face, but he doesn't understand the consequences of doing something like this um, and how it comes across to other people. And certainly... Uh, Renner and Rockwell let him know. Yeah. Um, so they head off and we see that 
this is which is so weird, which apparently was true. You know, Jesse James had this Mr. Howard identity and that he was supposedly some kind of cattle speculator or something like that. And right. he would go to town and pretend to do business. And we again, we have these weird out of focus shots. And Bob is there observing. Bob would rarely vouchsafe his opinions as they talked. If spoken to, he would fidget and grin. If Jesse palavered with another person, Bob secretary their dialogue, getting each inflection, reading every gesture and tick, as if he wanted to compose a biography of the outlaw, or as if he were preparing an impersonation. <laughs> the way, and this is from the book, the yeah. way Ron Hansen plays with language, mm. you know, if he palavered with a, another person, Bob secretaried their dialogue. Yeah. Like demythologized. Yeah, like, I guess so, yeah. That's the kind of word that's words he's using. <laughs> and then the camera pushes in on Brad Pitt sitting in a tub on the floor. Yeah. And Bob is there, and Brad, Jesse, without turning around, says, Go away. And Bob says, Used to be could no one sneak up on Jesse James. Second time now. Second time he's saying something like that. Well, did he sneak up on, on him? Right, right. Or no, did I Jesse think- James know he was there? Yeah, Jesse took. A, there's a little cue. He took. He turns to his left a little bit. So that's when you sense he knows yeah. Bob is there. I ain't never seen you out your guns neither. And casually, mm-hmm. Jesse grabs a towel from the stool, revealing his gun. <laughs> it would so funny the way this movie is structured and the way it's filmed. Every gesture seems intentional and yeah. purposeful and yeah. a statement. Yeah. I ain't never seen you without your guns neither. And he reveals his gun. Well, he's testing the boundaries, right? And he's, once again, he's trying to be f- too familiar with him too quick. He's trying to achieve a level of friendship without working for it. He wants it overnight. And even in that moment, him to be like, oh, you know, I, I snuck up on you. Oh, where's your guns? You know, it's way, well, I mean, why would you ask Jesse James this? There's a hubris to him that's uh, uns- well, that just doesn't stop. And is he already thinking about killing him? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. But this is why Maybe. I say this is the question of when did he start thinking this thing? Because he walks in, he sneaks up on him, says, yeah. I didn't see you without your guns, then sees he has his gun. Yeah. I think, so here's what I think. I think there is thinking about killing him and thinking about killing him. Right. And I think he is thinking about what it would be like to kill Jesse James maybe when he was 12. Mm, maybe. You know I mean? But he wasn't really thinking about it. He was just thinking right. about it. You know what I mean? Right. right. Yeah, yeah, maybe even like, oh, could I take him? Exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. You like some guy who sees the outlaw at the bar <laughs> or watches him in the well, showdown. People who are athletes and lift weights or are seen on TV as athletes, it happens all the oh, time. Yeah. Charles talks about, Charles Barkley has talked about how many people have come up to him in bars and try to challenge him and try to purposely like pick on him or instigate a fight or instigate an exchange by needling him or saying something inappropriate. And those little sad motherfuckers need to go. Like, it's just yeah. ridiculous when you hear about that kind of stuff. Cause like you, I'm sorry, your life didn't amount to dick. I, my life did. So don't take out your sadness about your shitty ass life on me. Uh, as a, or on a, on a celebrity or on an athlete. It's ridiculous. Don't take it out on me. Go and do something with your life. It's not my fault you fucked it up. And it, that's the thing when you see these guys and you hear these stories, that's what those people are doing. That's what they're trying to reduce these celebrities to a level that is a, a correlated, correlative to them so that they don't feel terrible about themselves or their lives. That's all that is. And it's, 
sad when you see it happen. You know, what I think is important to separate out is what 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 do we mean by status? Is do we mean yeah how the world sees me in relationship to everybody else, mm. or do we mean how I see myself in relationship yeah. to everybody else? Right. You know, is that because? And I think they're both problematic, but in different ways. Mm-hmm. Is in general, I mean, I don't think about status that much. I I, I get my sense of self-worth out of the idea that I would mess with Charles Barkley in a bar and that would give me more sense of self-worth makes no sense to me. Right. Or that I could stump you on a question and that would give me more sense of self. It has my, me stumping. If, if, if I could, it's, it's like, uh, I love playing volleyball back when Mm -hmm. I wasn't so heavy and had knees that worked better and all that stuff, but I love volleyball. (laughs) And I love, when I learned how to play a six, two or five, one offense and how, you know, how the positionings work and where I had to be for a setter and you work with the team, it felt so good. And Mm -hmm. I had always said, I would way, way rather play a great team and play great and lose Mm -hmm. than play a shitty team and destroy them and win. Right. It's how I play. That right. matters. It's not if I beat that other person. My status, if I play great, yeah, my yeah. best game ever, I feel good. Like right. I don't need to beat someone else to feel a sense of self-worth. Well, and I'm very distrustful of the world and what they value in terms mm. of status. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, because I've seen way too many people who I think suck, who are given a tremendous amount of status from the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I don't really, and that's where I kind of said like all these ideas of status are always sort of like, what the fuck are you doing going up to Charles Barkley? And yeah. like, what, what do you think is going to happen? What are you getting out of that? I don't get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's um, because seeing them just reflects, as I said, seeing them reflects their, their, you know, their non-status uh, to them. Well, and, but for them, I think reflection is right. the right word because in this next moment, we hear Jesse James say, I can't figure it out. You want to be like me or you want to be me? Oh, I love that line. I almost posted that line on Twitter today as I was watching the movie again. I was like, that's the line. Yeah. That's the line. And then we hear Bob was sent away cordially the next day. Why did he send him away? Because he crossed that line. He got too familiar. Time to send him away. Yeah. And we go back to this home that's run by Miss uh, Martha Bolton. That's the great Allison Elliott. Some of you may remember for a short time in the 90s. After the Spitfire Grill, she there was they were trying to make her happen in the in the independent film movement of the '90s, and in the end, it didn't eventually happen for us. But it's always great whenever she pops up in anything because I adore her as an actress. Uh, Charlie is there uh, with the other brother whose name is Wilbur, uh, mm-hmm. and Dick Little is there, and Wood is there, and man, apparently Dick Little likes the ladies. Oh yeah. At whatever age, which is really uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And what they even say is that... Wood Height had been spurned by Martha in his affections. You hear me? And his attempt to switch his pursuit to her daughter was currently being thwarted by Dick Little. Yeah. And then we go outside to Dick Little and the girl on the swing. Yeah. And it is, it is full creepy. <laughs> I'm not supposed to beat Dick. Well, you're just so pretty, I can't help myself. Well, it's full creepy in our eyes in 2021. But remember, I mean, young girls back then were getting married at 15, 16 years old. So, yeah, yeah, so it's and we're going to see Jeremy Renner's dad's girlfriend in a little bit. And she's considerably younger than that guy. Well, it's it's not his girlfriend. It's his wife. Oh, sorry. His wife. Yeah, Yeah. you're right. His wife. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. Bob enters and nobody even says hello to him. He says howdy three times and gets no response. Howdy. Howdy. 
And this is what you were saying before is he's got no respect for a long time. The camera is looking under his bed and he pulls out a box and there's all the Jesse James memorabilia, Mm -hmm. all the Mm -hmm. stuff he's treasured since he was a kid. Yeah. And now we had just seen Jesse James sitting in a bathtub on the floor in the middle of the room. And now we see Bob sitting in the bathtub in the middle of a field. (laughs) And what's next to him? Gun next to him. Just like Jesse James. Just Just like like Jesse. Yeah. Yeah. And he's splashing and cows are walking by and, then he turns and there's Dick Little just sitting there, snuck yeah. up on him. This it happens so many times in this movie that someone yeah. is just there. How long have you been there? Just now arrived. Did I miss much? In this scene, it starts off somewhat friendly and jokey, and then we get to this thing. Did uh Jesse mention that me and Cummins were in cahoots? Now we don't ever get to find out exactly nope. what's going on with this Jim Cummings guy. We never saw the scene. We never saw any of this. It's all just uh, being talked by Dick Little. But there's something going on behind Jesse James's back, and he is Mm -hmm. scared. See, he'll cut our throats if he finds out. You don't know him like I do. You do Jesse dirt, you can hide behind his back. Well, he'll come after you with a cleaver. And then Dick says, will you hand me that little gun there, six gun there, Bob? And Bob hands him his six shooter. Which seems real dumb. Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting in a bathtub with the gun next to you, it must be because you're afraid, you know? Yeah. And yeah. he hands over that gun and immediately Dick cocks it, puts it right to his face and says, If you so much as mentioned my name to Jesse, boy, I find out about it. You had better believe that. And I'll look you up. I'll knock on your door. And I will be as mad as a hornet. I will be hard. <laughs> when he says, we can be friends now that we understand each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy how much Bob absorbs in the first half of this film. Yeah. How yeah. much stuff is going on around him. And then he is put on a nice looking suit, a nice looking hat. He looks real slick and he overhears his brother and Wood and Dick, and they are looking through that box of memorabilia. I'm Buddy Flores. Stick your hands up in the air. And he comes in, and the best way I can describe his anger is spastic. Mm. You know, he is very much a little kid with his older brothers who's trying to fight back but isn't strong enough, who right. is is weak and feels weak and is lashing out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, this is the time you come snooping around here, you better strap on a shooting iron. And Wood, who's Jeremy Renner, knocks him down and he says, Son, you better recollect who my cousin is. Because you've seemed to misremembered that Jesse loves me like the good book. So first of all, this establishes a little more of Wood is and that Wood is a blood relation of Jesse James. Yeah. And then Bob's response is, I don't care. <laughs> How so? The title is the coward Robert Ford, right? Is he a coward? He's a coward only because that's the way he was he was um, portrayed or written about after he shot Jesse, because he shot Jesse in the back, which is what a coward does, or typically seen to be a coward. But he is a little bit at times a scared little thing, but other times quite defiant, quite willing to let to, uh, to quite willing to let his anger carrying him into situations that he shouldn't be in. Certainly, this is one of those moments. I don't think he's a coward. Okay. I don't think 
and we could say that shooting someone in the back is cowardly. That's certainly yes. we, we can make that argument. Yeah. But Jesse James also shoots people in the back. Mm-hmm. True. But I think the choice to be hanging around with Jesse James with the intention of killing him, knowing that he could be killed at any moment is not cowardly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all sorts of things. And I think right. he's filled with all sorts of fear. But I also think he is, you know, you compare yeah. him to his brother, Charlie. He's got a lot of guts. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Um. They even they even muss his hair as they walk mm-hmm. away. Yeah. Again, there's so much on Casey Affleck's face. <laughs> so much going on. The month of October came, and Jesse began seeing Pinkerton operatives in every floor walker, street sweeper, and common man poking about in a store. On the morning of the 11th, he would wake his wife with the scripture pertaining to the Holy Family's flight into Egypt. Overnight the Thomas Howard clan vanished from Kansas City. And we see the light moving through the empty house. Yeah. Again, it's just a moment of pure cinematography. I, I, this is why I really wonder, was this just Roger Deakins said, let me just photograph this house. Could be. You know? you know, I mean, the great ones or the real magnanimous directors understand how to let their artists do their thing because it helps their film overall. Wood and Dick would bicker across the entire state of Kentucky until they made Russellville home of Major George Hyde, Wood's father, and uncle to Frank and Jesse James. And we ride up, we see them, the view through a second story window, and one thing we hear is, you stay away from this one. She's my dad's wife. <laughs> Man, Dick Little has real, a real problem. No shit, no shit. Uh, but the thing is, it's not like he's not encouraged because, man, we're just sitting at that dinner table just looking at his wife mm-hmm. and she is looking down. She is pointedly not looking across the table at Dick until she does. Oh, it's on. It's yeah. on from the moment she's just standing or sitting there. Yeah, it's totally and, on. And we see that Wood's father, her husband, is an old, old man. with. I love yeah. that he's got the ear trumpet because yeah. he's deaf. Yeah. Um, and there's little looks, and then it's late at night, and she is, you know, doing embroidery on the porch. I guess we're the night owls, you and I. I'm glad. Oh? How come? You're interesting to look at. You have a real pleasant disposition. And I don't know, you sort of make me feel warm all over. <laughs> yeah, it's on. Yeah, oh yeah, it's totally on. Well, it's funny, in the book... Uh, yeah. They say she has a reputation for this. This is not her first rodeo at all. <laughs> Apparently, there's a lot of young men in the neighborhood that she's uh, uh, made had moves with. Um, and and as they're flirting, we also see Wood come out through the screen door before they see him. Ain't it about bedtime? It's later. We're up in a bedroom. Wood is smoking. And Dick sits up and says, boy, I believe I drank too much coffee. I got to go visit the privy, something terrible. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this to me is that this almost exact thing is going to happen later in the movie with Bob and Jesse. Oh, right. You know, Good point. Yeah. and that Dick would just says, okay. And he heads off to the priv- privy. That's not going to happen with Jesse James. Right. He walks up to the privy, the outhouse. It's lit up, which means somebody's inside. And Dick walks inside and. Mrs. Height sort of closes her skirt, but doesn't seem that embarrassed. Mm. And he and Dick, rather than saying, oh, I'm sorry, and stepping out, he says, hey, go ahead and do your duty. I don't mind. 
And she says, I've sort of got stage fright with a strange man in the commode with me. I ain't strange. I'm built just like the rest of them. <laughs> Dick Scott. <laughs> got moves. He's, He's got, got moves. some moves, man. Yeah. And then we cut to a close-up of the candle. She moves in in profile mm-hmm. and blows out the candle. Again, a beautiful shot. And in the dark, you hear. And I bet you thought I was a lady. Let this be a lesson to you, <laughs> gentlemen. Learn language. It can be quite effective when you need it to be. Vocabulary. The importance of vocabulary. <laughs> I have not found that my large vocabulary is was helpful in that regard, you know, 30 years ago when I had opportunities uh, to use it, but um, maybe today. I can say from my personal experience, it has helped. Oh, good. <laughs> so, yeah. What's interesting in the book that is different, one of the very few differences, is you actually see a gunfight between Wood and Dick right after this scene. Yes. Uh, yes. That, that is off. That's happened, but it's sort of off camera. Um, Ed, who we haven't seen in a long time, looks out his window and sees emptiness. And then a rider dissolves mm. onto the trail, comes towards the door, and it's Jesse James. Yeah. Well, you ain't much of a housekeeper, are you? He didn't just happen by. Why not? I think Ed's performance, the actor's incredible in this whole scene. Yeah, Garrett Delahunt, he's so good. He's scared. He and what's interesting, he he has a gun, but yeah. he actually puts it down. But of course it's Jesse. Yeah. Too scared to be holding that gun. And we're having kind of a conversation about housekeeping and about getting married and about his garden and what's he planting and that he's been sick. And then Jesse says You're acting queer. Ed, it's so interesting because he goes, he's he's very honest in a yeah. in a strange way. Well, you and me ain't been just real good friends lately. That's not your fault, you understand. <laughs> you talk though. And this yeah. is what it's about. Is what is the talk? Right. Well, and the talk is there are some other guys that were part of the train robbery. They're gotten arrested, and that we've and that Jim Cummings is saying that maybe Jesse James is going to kill all the other people that were part of the gang for that train robbery. Right. And there's a long pause, and we hear thump, 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 thump. And we cut to Brad Pitt, who is slowly bouncing his hat on his (laughs) knee. And the dangerousness he has when he's bouncing that hat and looking at Ed, and he says, I still don't explain why you're scared. (laughs) And of course, I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse James is scary. He knows um, what to do with those pauses, man. Here's my question. Yeah. Why is Jesse James here? And okay. did he intend to kill Ed from the beginning? Or is he waiting to see what Ed says before he decides to kill him? Yeah, I think he's waiting to hear what Ed says. I think he's... Um, and Ed's so honest, he's just putting it all out on the table. But so was Ed ever... Go- is Ed ever going to be a threat to Jesse James? No, but neither was Samuel Jackson and Goodfellas. They still shot him in the back of the head. So it's like, this is what he's doing. This is the Lufthansa murder or Lufthansa mm-hmm. heist. Essentially, Jesse is going through systematically person by person and killing people who might connect him back to certain things. So or anyone he suspects that might be, uh, you know, conspiring against him. And I think Ed is so dumb that he wouldn't even know he's conspiring against Jesse until the last minute. So. I think Jesse decides to take care of it in this moment as he's talking to him. I want to pose another question for us to consider. So one of the questions okay. is, is what point does Bob actually decide that he's going to kill Jesse James? Another question is, mm. so would you say, again, spoiler alert, it's in the title, <laughs> Jesse James is going to die. 
Does Jesse James want Bob to kill him? Yes. And if so, when does he decide that? Um, I've, I've, I feel like uh, he does. And that may be why he keeps him around because he's toying with the idea of being killed by somebody. Um, and maybe as he's seeing, as you know, we see throughout the movie how things are falling apart. His eyesight is going. His, uh, you know, uh, his um, psychological stuff is getting worse. Um, you know, the life he's living isn't a hundred percent the best physical life for him. He's got aches and pains, all this stuff happening. And so for him, maybe um, there is not a desire to grow old like Frank does. He wants to go out like a blaze of glory in a way. And you know, this is his way of kind of taking himself out and maybe you know steve as we're talking about it maybe this is a form of assisted suicide because he can't kill himself but he can certainly create the scenario where someone else can kill him and let on his terms and let it be done that way well and this is why i wanted to bring up this question now is just mm-hmm. as there's a point where bob makes a decision to kill jesse james there because yeah. i agree with what you said there, yeah. there must be a point at which jesse james has decided you know what i want bob to kill me yes And so at this moment, when he's with Ed, he does not want to die. Right. You know, because otherwise he wouldn't be doing this. Right. You know, a person who who wants to die in that way wouldn't be, you know, cutting all the loose ends. Right. I was terrified I saw you ride up. I just happened by, Ed. Suppose you heard gossip, though. Suppose you heard heard Jim Cummins come by here. You might have thought that we we, we were planning to capture you or get that reward. And, and, And that ain't true. And there's this moment he's out uh, next to the door, looking out. Bright, bright sunlight outside, lighting up his face. It's, again, it's a gorgeous shot. And he says, We say if we would go for a ride. We can go into town, I'll buy you dinner. And I'll be on my way. And then there's a long reaction. And Ed, very scared, almost gasps out the word. Okay. Does he know he's going to die? Yes. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think he might have been complicit in this stuff without knowing he was complicit in this stuff. I don't think we know. I, right. I, I, there's, so, that, well, there's so much about this movie that's under the surface Yeah, that I yeah. really don't know. Dick wakes up, hears something, sits up in bed, goes down the stairs with a candle, walks forward, lit by candle, comes around the corner, and there's Jesse James. Yeah. Again, being surprised by someone. Mm-hmm. And what? what does he say? You ready to go for a ride? <laughs> now, in the book, we go from the scene with Ed out to the ride with Ed, and Ed gets killed. And mm. in the movie, we say, let's go for a ride, and Ed says, okay. And then we cut away and only hear and see the murder of Ed later in flashback. Yeah. And yeah. so the connection putting, do you want to go for a ride with Ed, right with, do you want to go for a ride with Dick? To me, I'm feeling like, oh, shit, he's going to kill Dick, too. Right. That's how I'm feeling at this moment. I'd still like to know where we're going. If you were going to see Jim Cummins, wouldn't you follow this road? Now, does he suspect uh, Dick? Yeah. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. We come up to a house. There's a kid at the house. He comes out. We ask about Jim Cummings. Well, that's what happens. He's been gone since August. Never said where he'd gone to. And they get real rough with this kid. Well, they don't. Jesse does. You're right. Yes, Jesse does. Yeah. And it is real scary, particularly because he does the thing. I mean, he's hits him. He's about to twist his ear off. And then he is repeatedly asking, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where's Jim? 
Where's Jeff? Where's Jeff? But he's got his hand over the kid's mouth. So yeah. the kid can't answer. Finally, Dick pulls Jesse off of him. Mm-hmm. And man, I got to say, this kid has some guts in the way he yeah. talks to Jesse James this yeah. next moment. I never know where Jim is or when he comes. So leave me alone. Get off me, you son of a bitch. Because he kept his hand over his mouth so the kid couldn't say, I don't know. Uh, so he was frustrated by the fact that Jesse was doing And I think this is something Frank's done to Jesse. Mm. And I think Frank is, like, and I think this is Jesse like getting lost in the anger and the desire for vengeance against Frank in that, in that mm. growing up with that kind of stuff. And that's where I think he loses his mind a little bit. And uh, his Dick has to kind of, Dick knocks the hat off of him yeah. to calm him down or to get him out of that place that he's at. Well, and this is the thing. Mm. I think Jesse James is completely out of control in this moment. Mm. And I think he is completely out of control several moments in this film. Yep. Where we, where it's, some things are on purpose that he is manipulating or contrived to create right. a certain situation. Right. But I think there are definitely some points where he doesn't know what he's going to do next. No. Right. I, or, I, or doesn't even know he's, he, he, he's not aware of what he's doing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's some weird, it's not a fugue state, but it's some weird, yeah. like out of body, out of, you know, state. Yeah. Uh, and the, the moment after the kid's gone away and Jesse's alone in this stable and the hat is in the foreground and just him reaching and grabbing the hat, Mm. and slowly standing up it's just filled with so much emotion yeah. and we're out at the horses and dick is basically going man i can't do this anymore this is- it's so funny because dick is almost talking to himself like yeah. I, I can't i don't i don't want to be part of this no more i don't even know and so he's like just he's having a rumination in that yeah. moment about what's going on and jesse is crying yeah totally sobbing next to the horse once again it's this breaking of the mind he, he is suffering from some level of uh psychosis or some level of uh something that's affecting his mind and maybe these physical maladies and that does happen can affect your brain and so maybe these physical maladies are affecting his brain in those moments you know what i think you're t- I'm just thinking about it what you said before and i think you're totally mm. right because what's if if frank did this to him then the mm. moment after he is yes. filled with the regret. It's trauma. Yes. Yeah. Well, and he's like, oh my God, I just did this. T- I just did what was done to me. Yep. And he's yep. having that reaction. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a really, I think that could very much be possible. And what's yep. interesting too, is he kind of gets himself together and gets on the horse and you think, yeah. okay, he's got himself together, but then he hasn't. And he kind of folds over onto himself, mm-hmm. sobbing again. And then he just canters off, you know, yep. leaving a dick there. So Dick is yeah. saved. <laughs> Jesse was sick with wounds and aches and lung congestions. Insomnia stained his eye sockets like soot. He read auguries in the snarled intestines of chickens or the blow of cat hair released to the wind. And the omens promised bad luck which moated and dungeoned him. Moated and dungeoned him. Yeah. It's such a it's a it's a weird book and man that's some that's some language and what yeah. what I wonder about it what the fuck was Warner Brothers thinking what when, do you mean I I mean like this is such a weird yeah movie yeah and and like because at first I kind of go well maybe they just bought the idea you know because right. frequently when you buy a book you do that it's like oh. We're going to tell the story of these gunfighters yeah. and this guy who killed this gunfighter. And it's going to be a action pack Western. 
<laughs> but at some point they had to see the script and seen a <laughs> sentence like, you know, almost mm-hmm. promised bad luck, which moated and dungeoned him and gone. <laughs> what the fuck is this? Cause this wasn't, I don't know what the budget is. I should look it up. Oh no, I yeah. do. I do. I do have the budget. The budget is, so this is a $30 million movie Yeah, in 2005 or 2006 when it was being made. That's not a cheap film. Nope. You know? And so it's so, and yet this is fully an art film. You know what I mean? Yes. A thousand percent. But I mean, it's uh, um, Warner brothers with uh, Brad Pitt's production company, plan B. So I don't know how much of this is Warner brothers going, let's let Brad do his thing so that we can keep him for the oceans 11 movies or for these other movies. You know what I'm saying? You, you, we, you see those deals in Hollywood all the time. Let me pursue this so that, you know, because I'm sure Brad Pitt was the driving force behind this movie, I'm sure, wanting to play Jesse James. It's in the snow and we see uh, Jeremy Renner, Wood, now bearded, snow in his beard, Mm. riding back to the farmhouse where Martha is. (laughs) And he warms himself up at the stove. Mm -hmm. And we are upstairs in the bedroom and Bob is in the bed. He hears what's going on downstairs. He wakes up Dick. What hides downstairs? And Dick gets his gun and he cocks it and we hear step by step someone coming up on the stairs and the camera pushes in past Bob towards the door. Yeah. And the footsteps have stopped. So we know someone's on the other side of that door and the pause is a real long pause. (laughs) And then Wood comes in shooting. And I love that Charlie just wakes up and goes out the window. <laughs> it's a very funny roll off the roof into the snow moment. And the other thing that's crazy is, man, they don't shoot for shit. I mean, they're like five what? feet away from each other and missing each other. Well, like, I mean, I, what did uh, Clint Eastwood say? And um, William Money is like, uh, you know, you just he's just always been able to be calm and, yeah. and shoot. And that's really the calm person is the one that wins in these gunfights, you know. Because it looks so random. I mean, they look yeah. so well. It also goes to the point that you made earlier, which is like these are not the top guys that Jesse and no. Frank used to roll with. Right. These guys aren't so great, and they're clearly all over the place. But Wood manages to hit Dick in the leg just mm-hmm. as Dick shoots Wood in the arm, and Wood loses his gun. Yeah. And Dick aims at him. He's out of ammo. And then we're in this pause again. Dick on the ground, his leg bleeding, Wood's arm bleeding, and Wood kind of kneels down for a moment, and then he looks over at Bob, who's standing there holding a gun, mm-hmm. but not doing anything with it, and Wood walks over, grabs another gun, which I'm assuming is Charlie's, yeah, and he walks back to Dick, he puts the gun to his head, and Dick knows he's going to die at this right. moment. Starts the heavy breathing. Yeah. <laughs> Getting himself ready for the shot. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, Bob shoots Wood in the back of the head. And again, you know, it's what I said before. It's shocking. Yeah. And then the next moment is so odd because we call the family upstairs to say goodbye to Wood. <laughs> and it's so, the tone of it is so just weird and casual. Like there's literally yeah. just a gunfight upstairs in my bedroom. And there's a dude who's been shot in the back of the head who's dying, who I've known for a long time. And it's like, and Martha says, Sure hope you're not in frightful pain, Wood. I'd get you something to drink, but I'm afraid you'd just choke on it. Little Ida's going to miss you. So is the rest of the family. <laughs> I love that. It's so casual. It's very matter of fact. Yeah. 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 
this is not her first rodeo. (laughs) There have been other gunfights in her house, I think. Yeah. Um, And what we hear is there's a real problem, which is they can't go to the sheriff uh, because then Bob gets arrested. Right. And they can't let Jesse find out because Wood is Jeffy's Jesse's cousin. So, you know, he's going to come after them. Yeah. It's later. It's in the woods. And Wilbur and Bob drag the naked body of Wood out and dump it in a ditch. Mm -hmm. It just kind of half acidly throw some snow on top of it <laughs> to conceal the body. It's like, dude, snow melts. This is not, this is not a great plan here. This body's going to get found at some point. It's nighttime. The camera's on Bob. I can't tell. He might even be crying in this moment. I don't really know. It, it feels like he's having some kind of an emotion, but the shot isn't clear. Right. But what is clear is there's a figure in a fur coat who's coming up towards the house. Yeah. Is it him? Yeah. Why is he here? Does he know about Wood, do you think? I don't know, Bob. All I know is he don't miss very much. What should I say about you if he asks? You tell him I'm in Casey with Maddie. <laughs> and so we hide Dick, and we hear Jesse James telling a story downstairs, and Bob goes downstairs. Yeah, over there in Europe, there's only two Americans they know for certain, Mark Twain and Jesse James. <laughs> Bob walks in. Why, it's the kid. How's everything? And then we hear Jesse say, I never take you off my gun belts. Good thinking. Another question is, what does Jesse know? Why is he here? Does he suspect that Wood is dead? Oh, I don't know. I think he's just more kind of uh, shaking the trees to see what comes out. That's what it feels like to me. I think he does suspect that that Wood is dead. Because he heard about the shooting? He heard about the shooting. Well, Well, this is the thing. He's asking where Dick is. Right. You know, and Dick did just have a shootout with his brother or with, right. his, with his cousin. And one of the things he notices, because we hear that Jesse doesn't miss much, is that Charlie's limping. Yeah, true. Sam Rockwell. We haven't talked that much about him. Oh, my God. Yeah. His performance is amazing. Oh, my God. It's so nervous and so filled with all this. There's so much going on in this guy's brain, even yeah. though this guy isn't all that smart. Yes, slipped. I slipped off the roof and I smacked down into a snowbank like a ton of stupidness. <laughs> second, I'm screaming, whoa, Nelly, next second, poof, from neck deep in snow. <laughs> <laughs> and Jesse says, well, whatever possessed you to climb a roof in December? And, and there's looks. <laughs> yeah, that shot of Bob where he closes his eyes like, you idiot. Why did you even make up a lie when you know Jesse can see through you, you know? Which is well, ironic because Bob has lied to Jesse a majority of their relationship. Well, and, and Bob is a slightly better liar. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but, agreed. But this is the thing. Charlie is a terrible liar. Yeah. Because he says, and this is exactly what you should never do when you lie. He says, there was a, a kite. What am I saying? There was a cat. A cat was on the roof and I went after him. It was a tomcat. Yeah. And, and went all and I slept. Does Jesse know that Charlie is lying at this moment? Uh, yes, I think so. I think so too. So, and this is where like, what, what is Jesse doing? Like, I don't understand yeah. what's going on in his head, particularly from this point forward in the movie. Cause it's so obvious to me that not only that Charlie's lying, but that yeah. Jesse knows that Charlie's lying. Right. Right. And then out of nowhere, after some jokes, Bob just blurts out in a loud voice. Dick went to Kansas city to be with his wife. He's here for a bit. And this is like, again, this is another rule of line. Never answer a question that nobody asked you. Yeah, right. And loudly. <laughs> and loudly. And everyone looks and 
he kind of sits back down and there's a long pause. And then Charlie is desperately trying to fill the silence. <laughs> so he wants to tell stories about young Bobby and how he idolized and all the stuff he knew about Jesse James and his right. height and his shoe size, which by the way, size six shoe is a, that's a small foot. That's small foot. Um, I mean, he's five, eight, but that's a small foot. Charlie makes some joke about the reason that he has such small feet is that his toes were nibbled off. Uh, by catfish at a culvert and everyone laughs and Jesse lights a cigar and says, give you some more conversations, Bob. <laughs> and there's a long pause and Bob doesn't have any conversation. So again, Sam Rockwell just jumps in. I got some more stuff because he's terrified yeah. and trying to fill this silence. This is one of Let Bob tell it. And finally, after a lot of pushing, he finally agrees and he says, well, pardon my saying so, I guess... It is interesting the many ways you and I overlap and whatnot. I mean, you begin with our daddies. Your daddy was a pastor of the New Hope Baptist Church, and my daddy was a pastor of the church in Excelsior Springs. Um, you're the youngest of three James boys, and I'm the youngest of five Ford boys. Uh, between Charlie and me is another brother, Wilbur here, with six letters in his name. And between Frank and you, is another brother, Robert, also with six letters. And my Christian name is Robert, of course. You have blue eyes, I have blue eyes. You're five feet, eight inches tall. I'm five feet, eight inches tall. Um, yeah, I must have had a list as long as your nightshirt when I was 12. But I seem to have lost some curiosities over the years. <laughs> That's a lot, man. Yeah. I've never done anything to that level, but I certainly, when I was a kid, mm -hmm. found ways to find comparisons with heroes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, and then again, there's a long pause and Brad slowly sits forward. Yeah. And there's a very hard look and everyone's laughing and Jesse is smoking. And then Jesse James tells his own story. <laughs> I will tell you a story about that scalawag George Shepard. Shepard's one of Quantrell's lieutenants. He gave me a story much like Bob's what bring him to mind. Now, Quantrell is one of the leaders of the Bushwhackers, along with Bloody Bill Anderson, that uh, Jesse James was with during the Civil War. Right. And one of the things under Quantrell they did was they took 20 unarmed Union soldiers off of a train and executed all of them and scalped most of them. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot. And it sounds like there was some nasty, there's nasty stuff on both sides in, with guerrillas in oh, the yeah. Civil War. Of course. But this Quantrell and Anderson's, uh, they did a lot of scary stuff. Yeah. Going on about how much we had in common and so on so we could get in the gang. How could I have known he had a grudge against me? How could I have known he was lying to get on my good side? I said, George, come on aboard. Glad to have you. George thought he was smart, except he wasn't. One morning, George rides into camp, and about 20 guns open up on him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about this story. Yeah. Why does Jesse James tell this story in this moment? I don't know. You tell me. Okay. The question, it's the question of forever. Mm -hmm. When did Bob decide he was going to kill Jesse James? When did Jesse James know that Bob wanted to kill him? And what did when did Jesse James decide that he wanted Bob to kill him? Because mm -hmm. this story directed at Bob 
remember Bob came in and lied to get in the group and yep. said, I want to be your sidekick. And then Jesse James said, much like he said to George Shepard, I'm not particular who rides with me. That's why they call me gregarious. <laughs> Is that he said the same thing to Bob. I don't think he trusted Bob at the beginning. Uh-huh. And so I think he's saying to him, I yeah. know you're lying to me. I know that you're bullshitting me in order to get close to me. Maybe I know that wood is dead and you might've had something to do with it. And I don't trust you. Yeah. That I, what other reason could he have to tell this story? I guess so. Yeah. Kind of a veiled uh, shot taken to see what he, what, who, who gives up the uh, goods, I guess. That's a great point. Yeah. George, you only have one eye. You got two eyes. You want to get Jesse. (laughs) There's long, long look between Bob and Jesse. And Bob says, you ought not think of me like you do, George Shepard. You brought him to mind. It's not very flattering. It's weird how strongly Bob pushes back. But he's Jesse. got, yeah. Listen, we've joked about this in the past on shows and whatever, like on um, the shows, some of the shows I host, Jordan. But the, he's got a nerd rage, right? He's got this rage that when it comes out, when he feels threatened, it does not factor in the consequences of the action. Right. It's very much like you're trying to keep me down. I'm going to push back and say this to you right now. You ought not think of me. And he's trying to reestablish. He's trying to establish some level of status, some level of respect in this moment, you know, and uh, he's also emboldened by the fact that he just shot uh, wood in the back mm-hmm. of the head or whatever. So he, he's feeling himself even when they're out there discussing what they're going to do before Jesse shows up. Uh, and whether they can take him into town or anything, he's like twirling the gun like he's some little badass, you know, and it's and he's so completely not. But he's trying to be that. Right. What did what does Jesse say earlier? I can't figure out if you're trying to you're trying to be like me or be me. Right. And so in this moment, Jess, he's like feeling threatened by Jesse. So he's pushing back and he's trying to reestablish or reassert his manhood here. Well, and he, he's so everything he does is so out of proportion. He's awkward. Yeah. He's he's smiling too much. And then when right. he gets angry, he pushes too hard. It's yeah. not natural. Um, and the other thing that's interesting, because Charlie asks, what, why this guy have a grudge against you? Yeah. And he says, and the story tells us that George had a nephew. The nephew was supposed to have $5,000. That nephew ended up killed with his throat slit. And someone yeah. had whispered to George that it was the Jesse James that slit the boy's throat. Just mean gossip, was it? Bob's the expert. Let's put it to him. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wood, who's been killed by Bob, yes, is Jesse James's cousin. Yes. Now he has shown up told telling the story about a guy who wanted to kill him for killing his nephew. Right. Is like again, I think there it one could if he if he suspects that Wood is dead. Yeah. Well, then all of this becomes pointed. And the other question is, he never answers whether or not he slit this kid's throat to get the $5,000. True. true. That's very true. Yeah. But Bob doesn't like the way this is going on at all. Yeah. And he stands up knocking the chair over. Oh, dear. I made him cranky. Not cranky. I just been through this before is all. I don't want you to skip off up to your room and pout without knowing why I come by for this visit. Why'd you come by? So you tell us how sorry you are you had to slap our cousin Albert around? Man, he's lost it. He's out of control, man. He's got the nerd rage going, dude. And <laughs> he's got a last shot at everybody. I come by to ask if one of you two Fords care to ride with me in a journey or two. 
I guess we both agree it ought to be Charlie. You've been acting sort of testy. <laughs> and Bob walks out as, as laughter is in the background and he goes up the stairs. Yeah. He's been rejected by Jesse. Yeah. Publicly. Yeah. But again, I go, if Jesse knows that Bob, that Charlie was lying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if he doesn't trust Bob, why right. does he have Charlie come with him? I think because he's going to uh, kind of uh, interrogate Charlie a little bit, right? Keep him close. What, what do they say? Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. So <laughs> riding with Charlie, he'll, he'll find out the answer. Well, I think we're all going to have to speculate on this for a bit because as Charlie <laughs> rides up with Jesse James and his future assassin, Robert Ford, is left alone at the house wondering if he's lost his chance to either be like Jesse James, to be Jesse James, or to kill Jesse James. Mm. I think it is time for us to end part one of our exploration of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. We would love to hear what you think about this incredible film. Please visit us on Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files on Instagram at the Cinephiles podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. We just recently crossed a thousand reviews. Hey, I, I would like to get to two thousand faster than we got to a thousand. That's my yeah, feeling. So please leave your reviews there. Uh, leave your comments on YouTube. If you want to buy or stream the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, you could do so on our website, cinephiles.net, through Amazon Prime. And you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where we release cinephile shorts every week. We do Q&As. We give advanced knowledge of some of the movies and let you ask us questions and all sorts of other fun stuff on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to follow me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you love Star Trek the way that I do and the way that John does, you could check out my new show, Enterprise Incidents, which is uh, going one by one through the original series. John, how would people contact you and what other stuff do you have for them to check out? <laughs> yeah, you can always follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. That's R-O-C-H-A. Head on over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. A lot of trailer reactions, reviews, live shows, pre-produced stuff happening there. It's building and growing, so come be a part of it. And then uh, head on over and listen to my other podcast, The Top Ten, uh, The Geek Buddies uh, as well. And on Twitch, if you want to follow me on Twitch, The Outlaw Nation. Uh, as we're recording this, I did a two-hour live stream of the women's national team game against Australia at wow. 1 a.m. Wow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, these are the kind of dedicated times I have for Twitch stuff, and I'll be playing some stuff there as well. So there you go. Uh, well, that sounds like great stuff. I'm sure you're going to – I'm sure tuning into the Outlaw during the Olympics is going to be way more fun than <laughs> listening to people on Peacock. So yeah, I definitely sure. think you should do that. <laughs> and I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time. For part two of the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, right here on The Cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>